Look now, Jackson whispers. I see the wolf reappear, holding a pup in her mouth. Oh my God, she is so pretty, but not like other dogs. This isn't some cute poodle or even a mutt like Bella. She's wild and she knows it. I can tell this is her world where she's boss, not us. I watch, my eyes stuck to the binoculars, transfixed. She puts down the pup and goes back for another. The pup follows her and then changes his mind and turns around, sniffing the snow curiously. Soon there are three pups, four and five. Their coats are so thick, they look so comfortable in the snow, I say, wiggling my toes again, more with excitement now than cold. They're at home, my father says. It's us who are defenseless out here in these temperatures. Without all our clothes and equipment, we'd get hypothermia and be dead in an hour. The wolf belongs here. This is her land. He said what I just thought, her land. He truly sounds like a kindred animal lover. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Emma Harvey. Today we are speaking with author and animal rights advocate Ondine Sherman. Ondine is the co-founder and managing director of Voiceless, one of Australia's leading animal protection groups. Her first young adult novel, Sky, told the story of an animal-loving girl in a small Australian town who stumbles across a case of animal cruelty at the local chicken farms. Now there's a new book in the series, Snow, which takes our narrator all the way to the icy plains of Alaska. Together, Sky and Snow form the Animal Allies series, soon to be joined by book three, Star. Hi, Ondine, and thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for having me. Now in 2013, you wrote a memoir, um, The Miracle of Love, but Animal Allies is your first foray into YA. What prompted you to start the series? Well, The Miracle of Love gave me a taste of writing and I really loved it. You know, it's a, um, a book I worked on for many years. And um, when I finished it, I really wanted to find an opportunity to keep, keep writing because it gave me so much joy. Um, and I wanted to come back. Um, I mean, all throughout those years, I was still engaged with Voiceless. Um, but um, I took a break for a little while to um, be with my my children, particularly my boys who have special needs. Um, and I wanted to come back and focus on my, you know, passion about animals and to be able to kind of weave fiction um, and my love of animals together into a series. Nice. Well, in Snow, our narrator, Sky, she travels all the way to Alaska, which she calls basically the North Pole mm -hmm. and literally minus a billion degrees. Uh, did you visit Alaska for this book? Have you been there? Yes, I've been to Alaska twice. It's gorgeous. I think it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, I haven't been in winter, but um, I went to Lapland, which is basically the North Pole during mm. winter. It was about minus, over minus 30 degrees or under minus 30 degrees. Um, and we saw the northern lights. And um, so I merged those two experiences, the sense of freezing my <laughs> fingers off and toes off in Lapland with um, the, the time I spent in Alaska. Because spent, we spent about four weeks there. 
um, on the first trip and the last trip we were there for about a week or so. So it's, uh, yeah. Well, snow is full of fascinating facts about the unique landscape and the wildlife of Alaska. For example, I learnt that the US bought Alaska from the Russians for just two cents an acre in 1867, (laughs) and also that it is home to three million lakes. (laughs) So I'm curious, how did you go about conducting your research? Um, I mean, I I really love doing the research because it's, um, yeah, it's a really fun part of the process of writing and it's so easily accessible. Um, I mean, firstly, when I was last in Alaska, I was um, working on the book already. So I had my pen and paper and was collecting information and um, collecting, you know, the local newspapers and um, also speaking to our guides and, um, yeah, not jotting it all down. And then I spent a lot of time on YouTube and looking up um, other (laughs) experiences that I wasn't able to have. Um, It's amazing what one can find. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. (laughs) On the internet these days. Modern technology. (laughs) Yeah, well, I read that you spoke to an Alaskan hunter. Is that true? Yes, we had about a three-hour car ride with um, a guy who was an Alaskan local. And... um, and he was married to um, like a Native American woman or that was her kind of culture. And he has hunted his whole life. And I told him I was writing a book and obviously didn't, you know, I didn't bring any judgment into it or I was just really curious. It was quite hard to listen to at some points, but the actual practical process of hunting an animal and, you know, it's like a moose is huge. I mean, it's like bigger than a horse. Mm. It's like a massive animal. Like what happens after it's shot? Like how do you get it from A to B? And so he described all the ins and outs, which I didn't put all the grisly details oh, in the book. Good. But it was good for me to understand like how how it all goes down. Right. Um, and as well as being extremely interesting and educational, snow is also really funny and moving and uplifting. Uh, It explores parenthood and friendship and even features a little bit of a love triangle. I'm wondering why in particular did you choose the young adult genre? Um, Well, I really love that age. Firstly, my daughter is a young adult and she's my little assistant and advisor. (laughs) And it's really nice to be able to kind of connect with her in that way. Um, But I, I feel very attached to who I was myself as a teenager and there weren't really many books if any that I could read at at that age that really um, where you could you know meet a character who loves animals and um, learn about you know conservation and the environment and animal issues so I felt like I was writing a little bit for my younger self Um, and also I feel like you know, raising some of these questions and these animal protection issues is really important for the younger generation because they're going to be our future leaders and our future lawyers and politicians and heads of corporations. And um, there isn't much um, material out there on this subject. So for that reason as well. Yeah. And I mean, I would have loved to read a book like this when I was younger because I think a lot of kids and teenagers feel really passionately about the state of the world and about the treatment of animals, but it can be kind of hard to feel like you can have any kind of impact, especially at such a young age. Yeah. So what would you say to young people who are looking to do their bit for the environment and for animal rights? Yeah, I mean, I think it might seem hard, but um, there's so many ways to get involved and be engaged and um, and I think it's just, apart from 
I think having a good chance at producing a positive outcome in the, in the real world, um, it's very satisfying when you are active in an area that you're passionate about. It just feels really good. And it's, um, you know, I think it, you know, there's, well, there's one study on happiness that I remember where one of the key factors is doing meaning for, you know, having meaning in your life. And if you are passionate about a cause, whatever that might be, um, and dedicate your time and energy to it, um, that's going to bring, you know, a really, just for selfish reasons, a really mm. good quality of life, let alone, you know, the world has got lots of problems. And I think we all have a responsibility to, you know, step in and lean in and um, do something positive. Well, I mean, I, I know that you still are and you were a vegetarian when you were younger. Yeah. Um, and so do you have any tips like that for young people, things that they could do that mm. might make them feel yeah. like they're contributing? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm passionate about animals. So, you know, the most, in a way, the easiest thing to do and the most political thing to do in many ways is um, voting with your um, dollar as they say. Mm. So what we buy in the supermarket or in the, you know, stores, be it clothes or food, is a very direct um, form of activism because if companies are not are getting the message that certain products of theirs and certain practices of theirs are no longer acceptable or if companies who are doing really good ethical, you know, work and producing great products that are also you know, kind to animals and kind to the world are getting supported by consumers, then that's powerful. So I think that's that's a very easy way. And then there's many other, you know, forms of advocacy and ad activism from going to protests to writing letters to writing books. And mm. it's I think it depends on everyone's personality and um, just getting involved is the first step. Or reading books and reading like your books because I saw that all the proceeds for from the Animal Allies series go towards Voiceless, yes. the Animal Advocacy Institute <laughs> that you founded with your dad yeah. back in 2004. I'm curious, what, what did the world of animal rights in Australia look like back then and what prompted you guys to start the charity? Um, yeah, it was very different, which is a good thing because we've made a lot of progress. I mean, not only Voiceless, but the whole movement has made a lot of pro progress raising awareness of animal issues. Um, in 2004, um, you know, the word veganism wasn't even, nobody even knew what that was, mm. let alone you were very unlikely to meet anyone who was a vegan. Um, and there were some organizations doing good work, but it wasn't, it didn't have the, the coverage in the media or the you know, I think the internet has made a huge difference getting, you know, some of the undercover footage out there. You know, you think of the live export industry. Um, nobody knew about what was happening at that point. It was just a hidden issue, as is factory farming. And um, I'm going to be talking about the kangaroo industry in <laughs> the next book. So all these issues are, um, you know, they need attention and they need some media um yeah, some, some space in the media and that's changed a huge amount over the last 15 years and it's now like a really big issue for people and people really do care. I think the majority of Australians really care about animal welfare and uh, that's a big change from 15 years ago. Um, and why the name Voiceless? Where does that come from? 
Well, voiceless is, um, yeah, it's, it was an interesting choice because um, on one hand, animals have no voice in that they can't vote, they can't speak up for themselves in any way that, you know, is relevant to human society. They can't write a letter to the editor <laughs> or, you know, um, um, start a company. So they are voiceless in that sense. And we um, feel we had a have a responsibility to speak up for them. Um, but in other ways, animals are so communicative. You know, every species has its own um, own language, and scientists are just learning about you know the remarkable abilities of animals, even fish, to communicate. I watched um, a video the other day, an audio recording about um, of fish talking to each other. Oh my God. <laughs> so, like, not many people are recording the underwater voices of animals. Mm. I mean, we know a little bit about whales and dolphins, but not other fish. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, I think, yeah, we, you know, animals do talk, but we don't listen, I think is the conclusion. And we need to be their voice. As you said, Voiceless has just celebrated its 15 year anniversary, which is yes. huge. Um, what have been some of your proudest moments or achievements over the years? Yeah. I mean, I think we, when we started, we really wanted to build up the movement as a social justice movement. And that takes, you know, a lot of kind of time and energy to bring it from the sidelines and, you know, into the mainstream. So a lot of our strategies were mainstreaming the movement through bringing on people who were like influencers in different areas of law and, you know, writers, um, John Kutsia is one of our patrons and Michael Kirby, the um, high court judge, mm -hmm. ex-high court judge, is one of our patrons as well. So bringing other voices to, you know, um, validate this movement as being a really important cause. Um, and I think that was very successful and that the movement has really shifted from being seen in the past as a kind of radical movement mm -hmm. um, to one being, you know, really kind of integrated into our society. And that's kind of similar to how the environmental movement started out, it was seen as very radical. And today it's, you know, considered to be like a no brainer, <laughs> of course, yeah. you know, we have to look after the environment. And I think we're getting there slowly with the animal movement um, that it's, you know, of course we have to protect animals from suffering. Like every, not many people would disagree with that. Mm. So it's, um, so I think we've we've achieved a lot in also in animal law. We've been working a lot in that field and um, really um, kind of growing the field of animal law because it's through the law that animals are considered property and um, basically exempt of farm animals are exempt of all the cruelty laws that um, our pet dogs and cats, um, you know, are applicable to them. So changing you know, trying to work on changing some of those laws that govern what we can and can't do to animals. Yeah, that's really interesting. Your focus on um, animal law and educating people about the legal status and the rights of, of animals. Um, you sort of touched on it a little bit there, but what is the current status of animals in Australia right now? I mean, in the big picture, animals are considered as, as property. So it's mm -hmm. the same as, you know, our mobile phone like a person will own an animal and basically can do whatever they want to them within the scope of different prevention of cruelty laws that are applicable to different animals so what I could do as an owner of a dog I what I couldn't do <laughs> to my dog I can do to a pig if I was mm -hmm. a farmer 
So for, I don't know, to give a slightly <laughs> gruesome example, like I couldn't like um, cut my dog's tail off without any pain relief. Um, whereas I can do that to a pig or I can't um, lock my dog in a cage for its whole life, whereas you can do that to a chicken. Um, so depending on how we label an, an, an animal and what we see its use for us and how much money we can make from it, we kind of mold the law to serve our own needs. And it's got nothing to do with the animal's capacity to feel pain or suffering or joy or happiness or its own natural needs it's just about how it serves us in our life Hmm. (laughs) Um, well yeah there's there are some movements um in the u.s in particular but um kind of also over here to change that legal status from things from property to persons yeah do you think that that's an effective approach i mean i think that's really exciting what um some of the animal kind of big animal lawyers are working at at the Mm. moment especially in the US Um, and it's not to change their status as in they'll have the same rights as us Mm. and you know be able to go and vote but it would be like changing their status so they would have guardians instead of owners so if you have a baby um, someone can represent that baby in court if they feel that the baby is not um, receiving care or is being hurt So that baby can't then stand up in court and say this and that. They have someone who's representing them and their welfare. So similarly um, for animals, I think an ideal situation would be um, someone who's able, you know, a lawyer would be able to represent an animal. And the kind of animals they're working with are like great apes. So if a chimpanzee, for example, who we know are extremely smart, sentient creatures, very similar to humans, if that chimp has been locked in a cage, you could have someone saying, you know, this animal is suffering and we need to look at alternative care for it. And they could be, the chimp could then be removed from that situation and taken to a sanctuary or, you know, put into a better situation. So, you know, putting the animal's well-being ahead of our own economic interests or our own personal interests for whatever we feel like we want to do to that animal. Mm-hmm. And, and the Voiceless website provides a lot of resources for people if anyone wants to go and check it out and also a range of educational materials that you provide to schools. Yeah, so for that concept in particular, we created a video, like an animated video about legal personhood because it's a bit of, you know, it's a tricky kind of, you know, quite a complex topic. So we've um, created resources around it for schools um, with all different, yeah, fact sheets and videos and even podcasts and um, to help kind of uh, start discussions about what our you know, responsibilities to animals are and how the world could look different for animals. Nice. And um, what's been the response to that from schools and unis? I'm sure they're loving it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's um, material that they don't have otherwise otherwise have access to. Mm. And we're really the only ones who are working in this space now in Australia. Um, and surprisingly, well, not that surprisingly, but the, a lot of animal industries are in schools like um you know, with their own materials about their, you know, promoting their industries. Mm. So I think it's important for teachers and we're hearing also from teachers how crucial it is that um, students have access to lots of different sources of information. So it's not that they're just fed by (laughs) one, yeah, Mm. one industry who obviously has a vested interest in promoting their products. 
So, um, yeah, I think it's part of just the debate and discussion and critical thinking and getting young people to, you know, think for themselves as, as to what is, you know, um, how we can best <laughs> protect animals. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like your protagonist in your books, Sky, you have always been an animal lover from a very young age. Can you remember when that started, when you started to care so deeply yeah. about animals? Um, I mean, my... My first like aha moment mm-hmm. um, was when I was seven and we were sitting around the dinner table and my grandmother served like in this Eastern European dish um, of tongue. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when the chips fell as to like meat being animals. And mm-hmm. I had this dog, Bronnie, who I adored and I just couldn't understand. You know, I think this happens to a lot of kids, but m- many of them kind of move on from there (laughs) whereas I I was stubborn um so that was then I started learning about all the industries through um signing up to Animal Liberation magazine and it was very kind of traumatic material so I got yeah quite distressed but I learned yeah Mm -hmm. learned and kind of saw all these images and and that's what really cemented my desire to kind of dedicate my life to this and I wrote this letter to the editor I think when I was about 11 saying when I get older I'm going to you know spend my life (laughs) yeah changing the world for animals and um, that has never left me Uh, yeah and I feel like so many of us as young idealistic kids think the same but you've actually gone through with it yeah I mean I was lucky I had my father's support I got him on board which was amazing and he's been an amazing partner over the past 15 years um but yeah I yeah it's it's really good to work in an area and dedicate yourself to what you're passionate about if you're able to so I feel very lucky that I (laughs) can do this and you say that yeah your dad's been really supportive I did they instill that kind of love for animals in you um I mean I think so I mean I didn't grow up in like in a vegetarian family or anything but my dad's all my dad and my mom are very compassionate people and they were always talking about like social justice issues they had moved from South Africa you know back in the 70s because they didn't agree with the apartheid system we talked a lot about justice and injustice and you know um they've got yeah a really strong kind of moral compass so I feel mm-hmm. like I grew up in an environment where um a lot of those ideologies and um kind of philosophies were discussed and this was just a natural extension for Mm. me and then my whole family kind of got roped into it (laughs) eventually yeah that's amazing yeah and you grew up in sydney yeah but you now live in tel aviv yes with your husband and your kids (laughs) along with i read some rather interesting furry friends a kind of we bought a zoo situation (laughs) what's life like in the in the Sherman family home yeah so um we have really big backyard and as soon as as I saw the house I was like (laughs) oh what animals can I now so we um I you know adopted like some rescue chickens and we've got dogs and cats like also like street cats that we found there's a lot of street cats in Israel um and shelter dogs and um a friend of ours kind of 
convinced me to take her rabbit because it was you know in a cage in their apartment so we ended up with a rabbit and then I felt sorry for that that rabbit so I got a rabbit friend and they live with the chickens all in the kind of back area of our garden and it's yeah it's beautiful I love it yeah that's very fun yeah (laughs) and um, do you have a, a most interesting animal encounter pets or otherwise um Oh, they're so full of, you know, entertainment. I walk around the house because I work at home and it's just like the dog's here doing something funny and the cat's there. Actually, cats are probably funnier than dogs, I must say. Um, But, I mean, I really also am drawn to wild animals and I've been to Africa um, quite a few times in in the last little while. Um, And it's just amazing seeing, you know, the big lions and elephants and you know out in their natural habitat and living their their best life and so I love seeing wildlife out in the wild and also in Alaska when I got to you know see the moose and bears and all these beautiful animals so that heartens me to see animals still living as nature intended yeah incredible Um, And so on the topic of favourites, favourite animal encounters, um, we also like to ask authors what their favourite reads are, their favourite books, favourite authors. Do you have any (laughs) go-tos? Big question. (laughs) Yeah, I've never been able to like, you know, narrow it down. I'm like a big reader. I've always just loved reading. I can just talk about the couple of great books I've read recently. Yeah, please. Because um, I read Educated by Tara Westover, oh, nice. which was amazing. It was her memoir, um, but just beautifully written. I don't read a lot of animal books because I feel like my brain needs a little break <laughs> from, the, from the world. Um, so I kind of like to read on lots of different areas. And also I use reading to kind of learn around, learn about the world and learn about different cultures and different experiences that I would never otherwise know about. So I read, you know, books by Chinese authors and Indian authors and um, African authors. Um yeah. Or even when you were younger, what sort of books were you reading when you were a young adult? Well, when I was a young adult, um, I read lots of National Geographic. I love mm. that. And like Sky, I had to slip that in there. I actually would have loved to have been a National Geographic. Oh, there's you still know, time. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read Judy Bloom, who I loved, and I read... Um, you know, I started reading all the classics very young, so Dostoevsky and, oh you know, um, all the um, Wuthering Heights and, you know, Pride and Prejudice. And I really think that's important to read some of those, you know, real classics. And because I think like, you know, for people interested in writing as well, that's really good training for learning mm. about language. Although my grammar is probably still not the best, but <laughs> I didn't notice. Okay, <laughs> thanks to the editor. Thanks to your daughter, the informal yes. editor. Yes, yes, she gets very angry at my commas and my <laughs> badly used <laughs> commas. I'm a chronic comma overuser, so join the club. Well, on that note, um, what can your readers expect from the next book in the Animal Allies series, Star? Yeah, so Star is set back in Australia, mm-hmm. and it's um. She so Sky kind of gets involved in the world of animal advocacy a lot more and both online and in person she goes to a big animal rights conference so she meets some of the kind of people who you know are leading the movement um, both in Australia and in other countries um, and 
she so there's the, the animal theme is really kangaroos um actually my my husband's a kangaroo biologist oh. um so i happen to know a lot about kangaroos <laughs> <laughs> and voiceless has also been very um involved in protecting kangaroos over the years mm-hmm. so that's an issue i'm passionate about um but yeah the whole world of social media and advocacy is something that's that um is part of the story and um, I think we'll take readers into a slightly different place than in snow so I'm really excited to hear what people think of the next one very exciting well Undine Sherman's Animal Allies books Sky and Snow are available from the Good Reading website goodreadingmagazine.com.au and from all good bookshops if you would like to donate to Voiceless or read up on animal rights and protections from their wonderful range of free resources visit voiceless.org.au Ondine, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you for having me.